We are in Joshua chapter 6 today. It is uh, a little long, 27 verses, so we're going to go through it as we go. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to this amazing story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, a story that many of us have heard so many times before. We pray that we would learn its lessons once again, or perhaps for the first time, and make them part of our lives. Thank you that today we're learning from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand, believe, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to the law, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 6 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I'm going to ask Tom and Eli, okay, if you guys are ready, welcome to our second uh, Family Sunday. Uh, Earlier this week, I wrote to you about the old spiritual learned by many of us as a children's song or a camp song, and... uh, How many of you remembered it? How many of you got it stuck in your head? All right, you're welcome. So we're going to sing it uh, this morning, and I'm going to ask the kids to help me sing it, and Tom and Eli are going to help as well. They're going to lead us. Uh, Parents, you can help if you need to, okay, as soon as you're ready. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Very good. Very good. Great job. What? The adults want to sing it too? Okay. Let's do it again, this time with everybody. Sing loud now. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. All right, great. Not as good as the kids. Yeah, you guys can sit down now. Uh, But not bad. We should do that more often. Thanks, everyone, for singing. Thanks, Tom and Eli, for leading us. Uh, And as I wrote to you uh, earlier this week, Despite the awesomeness of that song, there's a small problem with it. It's not all that accurate. So what did happen? Well, as you figured out by now, we're talking about Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And many people think this is about having great faith, and there's a lot of that. Living the victorious life, there's a little bit of that or overcoming your own personal Jerichos, and there's virtually none of that. But the song does point us to Joshua chapter 6, and that's a good thing. And so while the lyrics don't actually bother me all that much, and uh, there's actually like a dozen more verses, um, we ought to recognize that there's one essential problem with them, and that's simply that it's the Lord not Joshua, 
who fought the battle of Jericho. It's true that God used Joshua uh, to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. And certainly God spoke with Joshua repeatedly to give him instructions. And there's no doubt that Joshua is a man of uncommon bravery. But in the end, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God did. God brought down the walls. God gave the victory. Indeed, the battle itself isn't really the focus of the story. Its outcome is announced in advance. And uh, we'll see the battle is actually more of an extended worship procession as they march around the city. Now, don't think city like Washington, D.C. This is a small city. It would be about the size of this school and the next school put together if we got out and walked around both schools. So that's about the size we're talking. Um, Roughly less than a mile. Um, And uh, so that's sort of what happened. The focus is actually on... um, how God calls his people to obey him and gives them really strange instructions and then how he blesses them when they do actually obey what he said. So God's people advance in God's purposes uh, as they follow God's plan. And so when we turn to the pages of the New Testament and we ask the question, how did the walls of Jericho fall down? As we read earlier, Hebrews 11 gives us the answer. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The astonishing truth is that the defeat of Jericho is a gift from God. It's the unmistakable theme of this chapter. From the opening verse that leaves us asking how will the wall ever fall to the closing curse on anyone who tries to rebuild it. The clear lesson of Joshua 6 is that God gives his people victory over their enemies. But the big question is how? (coughs) Excuse me. How does he do that? So as we follow the story, you'll see it's about God making and keeping his promises and about the people believing and obeying his commands. So that's what we're going to talk about. God makes and keeps promises, and the people believe and obey his commands. And we're going to start right there. And we're going to see the Lord makes a promise. That's the first plank in your outline if you're following along uh, with that. Let's read verses 1 through 11. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpets, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, 
march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So, verse 1 is actually a brief remark that shifts the account to the location of the enemy and away from the dialogue between the angel of the Lord and Joshua. We saw that last week in Joshua 5. We're told the city of Jericho is tightly shut, which is what you would expect, but not what you would want. It's tough to attack a walled city once the gates are closed and all the people are holed up inside. And perched upon the walls are these large towers and stations with guards ready to shoot arrows down or pour hot oil or dump rocks on you if you get too close to the wall. And guards watch the entrance from their towers. And the gate system is the weakest part of the wall, so the entrance actually consists of several gates. So if you punch through one, you've got two left. So you hope to get some battering rams close enough to start whacking at the wall, but punching a hole through the gates can sometimes take weeks. And climbing the walls is horribly difficult. Like General Custer, you'll be wearing an arrow shirt before you get very far. Nobody, nothing, nobody got that. Okay, so Jericho is very secure. And though the city appears invincible, the reality is um, that Israel has the Lord fighting for them. So the angel of the Lord, the commander of the heavenly army, gives instructions to Joshua. And the first thing he says, verse 2, is, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. That's a statement of completed action. It's not, I will give Jericho into your hand, but I have given Jericho into your hand. The conquest of the city is a done deal. And then the angel lays out the plan of attack. The conquest of the city is going to take seven days. And on the first six days, the army is going to march around the city once a day. And the order is clear. As usual, soldiers will lead the way, followed by seven priests who each have a trumpet made out of a ram's horn, and then the Ark of the Covenant, carried by the Levites. And finally, there's a rear guard of soldiers that follow behind the Ark. It's actually, uh, this formation is like most ancient battle marches. So when the people of Jericho see the Israelites circling their city, they would have recognized this as a powerful military machine. Except for one odd thing. Joshua calls for complete silence on the part of the army as they march around Jericho. Historically, the armies would taunt the other army. They would be yelling at each other. Uh, essentially, you know, we're better than you are kind of thing. 
um, not nearly that nice. Um, but Joshua calls for silence. And he's insistent on, and if you look at uh, verse 10, it actually tells him three times. You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth. The only sound to be made is the blowing of the trumpets by the priests. So the Israelites follow these procedures from day one through day six. And the text is clear about that. Verse 14 says, uh, so they did for six days. And it highlights the obedience of Israel to the commands of God. But if we move on, we see that it's not just the people who follow God's word. It's God himself. Look, starting at verse 12, we see the Lord keeps his promises. So the Lord makes a promise and the Lord keeps his promises. He's actually going to keep several in this text. Starting at verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. 
So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So you have the scene. You have this small walled city. And on the seventh day, the marchers are to circle the city seven times. The number seven plays a leading role in the story. There's seven priests and seven trumpets and seven days and seven marches around the city. And in Hebrew culture, and we learned this in the book of Revelation uh, in Sunday school, the number seven symbolizes completion or is a mark of a completed task. And apparently the people marched silently the first six times they circled the city. And on the seventh day, on the seventh day, trip around the city, the priests blow the trumpets, and Joshua commands the people to shout, and they do. And so it's on the seventh day that the event reaches its high point, and the walls of Jericho fall down, and the Israelites enter the city. Just like when they cross the Jordan River, the amazing thing is that the people believe and obey Joshua. You think about it, they had been told that when they're going to cross the river, you will cross on dry land. And they're all looking at a river. How's that going to happen? But God did it. And now they're saying, you're going to capture the city, you're going to walk around the city a whole bunch of times, and then the walls are going to fall down. These walls have been there for hundreds of years. Some of those, uh, there's remnants of those walls still there today. You can go see them. But, once again, if God's given the orders, the people believe and obey the orders. Now think about this. They actually didn't hear God issue the orders. They were only given to Joshua. They only had Joshua's word for it, that the orders came from God. So they had to believe that God spoke to Joshua and that he told them to tell the people to act in this strange way. I mean, marching around the city without making any noise. That must have seemed to them ridiculous. No army in history has ever received such a silly command. But they trust God throughout this long week of strange marches, and they believe and obey. Divine commands sometimes seem strange to our way of thinking. How absurd for Naaman to be told to bathe in the Jordan River for his leprosy to be cleansed. But he did, and it was. How unreasonable to the disciples uh, for Christ to feed the 5,000 with five uh, loaves and two fishes. But he said to do it, and they did it, and they were all fed. Why should the servants fill the jars with water when it was wine that was needed for the marriage in Galilee? But they did, and it became wine and Another miracle. Sometimes the miracles aren't given just to show us that God's great and powerful. Sometimes they're given so that we'll believe the next time God tells us to do something. So God tells them to walk across the Jordan River on dry land, and they do it. So now they believe him when he says, walk around the city seven times. A God who can perform such miracles can give them the city of Jericho too, even if they don't understand why he's telling them to do it this way. They obey what he says. 
And you think about what happened here. The great writer Walter Wangerin describes what happens. And I'm just going to read what he says. He says, on this day, Israel circled Jericho seven times from early morning to late afternoon. Suddenly, in the midst of their seventh trip, the sound of the ram's horn changed. It rose to the shrieks of eagles, and all the voices, all the throats of Israel opened. Ten thousand warriors turned inward, roaring, and charged the city. The city walls began to shudder. The king of Jericho felt a terrible earthquake in the stones beneath his feet. His archers leaped up. Spearmen reached for their spears. Women brought pots to ignite the oil and sheets of fire. But just as Israel entered the range of Jericho's arrows, the city wall rose three feet into the air, bellowed like a living thing, cracked at every joint and mortar, and collapsed. A great crush of huge stones on all the people below. The king of Jericho tumbled down into his dying city. The burning oil spilled inward. Fire and timber and rock fell with him. And the final vision given the king was a piece of the wall which neither crumbled nor burned. A slim finger of stone with one window two stories up from which hung a scarlet cord. In his last instant of life all the world seemed to the king a bitter joke. For why should that one live and not another? And that window belonged to an outcast, a woman named Rahab. There is a single exception to all the destruction taking place at Jericho. Just after the walls fall down, Joshua sends two spies, the same two scouted the land back in Joshua 2, to enter Jericho and save Rahab and her family. Rahab had saved these two men from death, and now they do the same thing for her. The spies obey Joshua, and they retrieve Rahab and her family. And the section concludes with a statement that Rahab had lived in Israel since the time of the destruction of Jericho to this day, which serves as a confirmation of the truthfulness of the account. In other words, the fall of Jericho took place just as the author described it. And if anyone has a question about it, all you have to do is go ask Rahab, who's still living in Israel. Rahab and her family shall live. They shall be spared because she hid the messengers, verse 17. Rahab acted by faith, and therefore she is to be saved. And we know from Hebrews 11 that God blesses her as a champion of the faith. And she ends up in the line of our Savior. So here is God's grace being poured out in the midst of great judgment. And we could spend a lot more time uh, on Rahab, but we did that back in chapter 2. So I encourage you just to go look at that one again. Meanwhile, we find out that the battle for Jericho is over. However, right in the middle of the description of what's going on, there's some unusual comments in the text. You would expect to move right from verse 16 with the order to shout to verse 20 where it says, so the people shouted. Instead, we're given special instructions for the Israelites. And the insertion of these instructions demonstrate how important they are. Now, 
I've tried to keep this as simple as I can for the kids, but it's going to get a little complicated uh, for our kids from here on uh, out. But it's important to understand the whole story and the whole book. Joshua tells the people of Israel that Jericho and everything in the city is to be, verse 17, devoted to the Lord for destruction. The Hebrew word literally means utter annihilation. And actually, it is the last word of the Old Testament. It's the last word of the book of Malachi. And it's used in connection with a number of cities attacked during the conquest. And usually such a ban means that all living things are to be killed. This is holy war terminology in which unholy things are destroyed as a sacrifice to the Lord. And for, the, for people everywhere of all time, this makes up one of the great ethical dilemmas of the Old Testament. People will argue that it's unworthy of God to be depicted as ordering the total destruction of the Canaanites. How could a loving God order utter annihilation? It's what we call the issue of theodicy, which is an attempt to answer the question, how can a good God allow suffering or evil? And a foundational observation that we have to make is that God does, in fact, order the destruction. There is no way around that truth. And Moses tells the people before the book of Joshua even starts in Deuteronomy 20, but in the city of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. And the question is, how can God order such a thing? Well, first, it needs to be pointed out that Israel is to take possession of the land by the immediate hand of God, who has an absolute right to exercise his power in any way he wills. Second, the Canaanites are not innocent people. They weren't all that innocent as they stand before God. They are not a peaceful and righteous people. And they're in no way undeserving of God's justice. They absolutely deserved it. When God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, he said it would not occur until the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And since the time of Abraham, the Canaanites have been heaping up sin. Leviticus 18 recounts the wicked behavior of the Canaanites, too wicked to list on Family Sunday. Therefore, we see God's justice going forth against the Canaanites because they have utterly rejected God and his law. And Israel acts as an instrument of God's judgment on the Canaanites. In one sense, this shouldn't be too surprising. Uh, elsewhere, God uses pagan nations to, public, to punish the uh, Israelites. We saw that in the book of Jeremiah a couple years ago. And at Jericho, God is simply using Israel as an instrument of justice to punish the Canaanites. So the destruction serves the purpose of not only punishing the Canaanites, but also God protecting his own people. 
Also back in Deuteronomy 20, the Lord gives them the reason that Israel is to destroy the many nations before them. He says that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Simply put, living with pagan nations in the land of promise makes Israel vulnerable to fall into wickedness. Now, if you've read the rest of the book in Old Testament history, you know they don't fully obey God, and it leads to every problem they have in the promised land. Because they didn't wipe out the pagan nation, they adopt pagan practices, and it caused problems. And eventually, it will cause, be the cause of the exile. So that was then. That's what happened. That's why God gave the commands. But what about now? Well, first of all, since the fall, God typically interacts with those outside of his covenant through what we call common grace. That's the grace of God that goes to everybody. He makes the sun shine on both the evil and the good. But there's a time uh, that comes when common grace ends and God judges. Now, this occurs when each person dies and then again when Jesus returns. Second, God occasionally lets what we would call a foretaste of judgment break into the age of common grace. Remember the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues in Egypt, and the conquest of Canaan. And those things break in sort of to remind us of what God's judgment really is. Now today, God typically defers judgment giving people time to repent. And in the new covenant now, God normally exercises judgment through excommunication by putting unrepentant sinners outside of his covenant community. He withholds judgment until the last day, but he has the right to judge at any time. Of course, it's easy to see in the Old Testament. We see it with the flood, we see it with Egypt, and now we see it with Jericho. And in those cases, judgment breaks into the present to warn people about the coming destruction. Now, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus, our greater Joshua, says the flood teaches us that the Lord will come unexpectedly to judge all nations, and we need to prepare for that day. So here in Joshua... We have a picture of the way our greater Joshua, Jesus, will eventually lead us into God's land at the end of time with a shout and with the sound of trumpets. The Apostle Paul describes that in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this Old Testament story points beyond itself to the way Jesus, our greater Joshua, will deliver judgment on that day when all who persist in wickedness and unbelief will be devoted to destruction. And on that great and terrible day when Christ returns, 
all who have rejected his shed blood and his perfect righteousness as their only hope will suffer the same fate as those who lived in Jericho. Rich and poor, great and small, young and old, will all face God's wrath when the commander of the Lord's armies, who led the armies of Israel to kill every inhabitant of Jericho, will bring complete and final destruction on the city of man. But the book of Joshua, which paints a picture of divine judgment on the Canaanites, is also quick to show us what happens to those who deserve judgment but cry out for mercy. Verse 25, But Rahab and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The judgment on the Canaanite city of Jericho is horrific, but someone was spared. And it wasn't the most upstanding, the most impressive, the most religious, or the most important person. It's the one who believed what God had said and sought to come under his promise of grace for sinners. And for anyone and everyone who seeks God's mercy while it may be found, a salvation identical to Rahab's is not only a possibility, but a promised certainty. So let us not come to this text and judge God, but remember that he judges us. We must not mistake his patience with us for indifference. We dare not read Joshua and question God, demanding, what have you done? Apart from God's grace, we all live in Jericho, and his judgment will fall on us. And we need to prepare as Rahab did by confessing his power and joining his side. There are great evils in the world. People do terrible things, sometimes for generations. Canaan did great evil, and God finally stopped it. Beyond that, the gospel doesn't make sense without God's justice. If you look with me at Romans chapter 1, Paul says, In verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But if we look one verse earlier, verse 17, Romans 1.17 says, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we see that the gospel is God's answer to his own wrath. God is merciful and withholds the justice we deserve if we accept his remedy for sin, repentance and faith in Jesus, who took the punishment we deserve, forgives us of our sins, and lets us join Rahab on the Lord's side. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus, our greater Joshua, according to Colossians 2.15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's death secures our pardon, enables us to face the final day of judgment with confidence, and we realize that while we were enemies of God on account of our sin, no better than the immoral, idolatrous Canaanites Romans 5.10 tells us, 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life. And yes, just like Rahab, dead in our trespasses and sins, we can become alive in Christ by grace. Therefore, there's no room for boasting. None of us can feel proud of ourselves. All we can do is acknowledge the one who has saved us, worshiping him, and proclaiming God's foreign policy to the world. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joshua 6 is a remarkable story. It's recorded for us to remember and to encourage one another. It's a window on what every believer needs and has been given by God's grace. Their world of weakness has been invaded by one of awesome glory. And as they walked around Jericho, God was confronting Israel with their inability and their vulnerability and their dependence on him and then comforting them with the reality that he would be with them wherever they may go. Grace and glory had come to God's people in the presence of the Lord and the walls came tumbling down. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son and once again open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to obey because we fail to listen, because we fail to believe. So forgive us, Lord for our failures to obey your word. Forgive us for our failures to believe your word. Forgive us for being afraid of following you. And work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua as he brings us the eyewitness account of taking the promised land. Help us to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Joshua. Draw us ever closer to the one who lets us join Rahab on the Lord's side. Your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.